as you can see, if you're there in Luke chapter 24 now, you see that we're in verse 44. We're going to go, Lord willing, through verse 49 this morning. And then if you look after that and you do the math, you say, well, there's only four verses left after that. Uh, that's, I think we're going to be done this year, perhaps. And so, uh, no, Lord willing, we're going to be done in, in next week, and then we're going to go into our new series, uh, the, the Promise of the Gospel. It's going to be a series dealing with, uh, just a, a short series, dealing with an overview of the Old Testament and the person of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, the gospel in the Old Testament. And I think it's going to be a very encouraging series for those of you who maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable around the Old Testament, not quite sure what to make of it and how to understand it. So we're going to look through the Old Testament and see the gospel in the Old Testament, see the person of Jesus Christ, his work, ministry. It's going to be, a, I believe, a, around 10 weeks that we spend in, in that series, and so I'm excited about doing that with you again, Lord willing, beginning in a couple weeks, that being our, our fall series. Well, hopefully you're there in Luke 24, and so if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Remember, we've seen Jesus in the post-resurrection ministry. We've seen him on the road to Emmaus. Then we've seen him as he's talked to his disciples through verse 43, and we're not sure if any time takes place between verse 43 and verse 44, but we see he's talking to the same people, his disciples, those who followed him, and we read these words beginning in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your authoritative word that lets us understand you and know you. We want to obey it, and we want to obey it not to earn favor with you, we know that we cannot earn or merit your pleasure, but because you've already bestowed your pleasure upon us, because you've already bestowed your, your grace upon us, we love you. You first loved us, so we can love you, and, and so we want to be obedient to these things out of love, out of a desire to, to show our love for you, and so give us the ability to do so through the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Five years ago yesterday, we held our first official worship service at Bethany Community Church. So five years ago yesterday was our official launch date. And I think we have a picture of that, Chris, in our next uh, picture. This was five years ago yesterday, celebrating our, our, uh, our anniversary. This was, uh, I, I look just the same now, too. I don't think any of us who were there have aged today. But it was, you know, five years ago... I got a blurry picture on purpose, so you couldn't uh, verify that. 
But, you know, it was five years ago yesterday that we held our, our first official service. This was a few uh, months earlier, our first Sunday school meeting. And, and God, I think you would agree, uh, has been very gracious to our church, right? It was also yesterday, it was not only at the, our five-year anniversary yesterday, but it was, it was yesterday that uh, we celebrated the life of Cindy Lawson at her funeral service yesterday. And she and Gary, her husband Gary, were, were founding members of our church. Uh, Gary Lawson was one of our original members of our shepherding team. And it was five and a half, six years ago that I was sending emails out to Gary and, and the other members of that shepherding team. And we were talking about what the purpose of the church was. We were looking at God's word and I was kind of sharing them sharing with them some of my thoughts. They were sharing some of their thoughts with me. And, and we were thinking, okay, what is, as we look at Scripture, what is the purpose of the church? And, and how do we take all the things that, that God's Word says a church is to be engaged in and, and doing, the ministries we're to be doing, and how do we encapsulate that in kind of a, a single statement? And the, the statement we came up with, and hopefully you know this if you've been at Bethany Community Church for any period of time, we believe that we exist to glorify God as we, what? As we, number one, proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and, and secondly, as we prepare people to worship him forever. That's what we believe our, our purpose as a church is, proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and engaging in this, this, this gospel proclamation of the person of Jesus Christ, and also engaging and preparing his people to worship him for eternity. Right now, we live in light of eternity and we prepare one another for the day in which we will enter into God's presence. Now, early on, as we're talking with the leadership team, we're talking with Gary and, and the other guys, uh, we came to a very easy decision, a very quick decision, but a very profound decision for the life of our church. As we thought about our Sunday morning worship service, we said, now, what is our, our focus on a Sunday morning? Is it to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord evangelistically? I mean, are, is that, are we targeting unbelievers on our Sunday morning? Or, or do we believe that, that Sunday morning is designed to help the believer be prepared through discipleship to worship God? And the conclusion we reached is that a Sunday morning service is designed to help the believer be prepared to worship God. Which means that our task of proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord evangelistically takes place not on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week. What that means, and stay with me here, what that means the task of proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord to unbelievers falls upon each of us. Each of us are responsible to engage in that ministry throughout the week. That profoundly affects the nature of our church. It profoundly affects what takes place on a Sunday morning as we focus on believers and strengthening them in their faith, not, not unmindful that unbelievers might be in, not, not avoiding proclaiming the gospel, saying okay, our, our primary focus is the believer, but it also means it changes how we view the rest of our week. It means that as you find yourself at school, as you find yourself in your neighborhood, as you find yourself in the workplace, as you find yourself in, in, the, in the neighborhood, wherever you find yourself, 
you should be thinking evangelistically. If we're to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord to unbelievers, to those who do not yet know the Lord, it's going to be because primarily we're engaging in gospel ministry in the rest of our lives. I know what some of you may be thinking. You may be thinking, okay, Daniel, if the task of fulfilling our responsibility as a church to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, if that responsibility lies with me, this church is in big trouble. <laughs> because I'm not a person who's comfortable sharing my faith. I'm, I'm not a person who's comfortable talking about spiritual things with other people. Uh, you know, I, I, am a per- I don't even know if I know any unbelievers. Um, I have really bad coffee breath. And so talking to people, you don't, I, B.O., you know, I, you're, I'm not the guy. This past week, uh, Hannah and I were walking to school, and on Thursday morning, what we'll sometimes do is I'll, I'll park the car a couple blocks away, get there a little bit earlier, and we'll, we'll walk to Central together, and we're, we're talking about things. And I started asking her about what she learned in youth group uh, Wednesday night. And, and by the way, if you're a young person here, or a, a parent, let me put a, a plug in for youth ministry. I am so grateful to God for our youth ministry here at Bethany Community Church. I, Wednesday, honestly, was not a very convenient night for us to go to youth group. Uh, Hannah had student counts in the morning, cross-country. She had homework. But I really honestly believe that uh, God has given us the youth ministry at Bethany Community Church to, to take what parents, I as a parent, am teaching my daughter and to come alongside her and love her and help her understand the Christian faith. Highly recommend the youth ministry to you. Uh, I'll collect from Phil later for that commercial. But... Um, Anyway, we're talking about what they learned at youth group on Thursday morning. And, and she said, well, we were talking about friendships. I said, okay, well, tell me about friendships. She said, well, one of the things that, that Mr. Phil talked about as is, is we talked about friendships, he said, it's important if you are truly a friend to a person to share the gospel with them. I said, okay, that's, that's good. Well, well, tell me. Uh, I said, how, how do you think you are at, at sharing the gospel with your friends, for example, at, at school. And she goes, well, you know, we, we talk about spiritual things. Uh, Sometimes, I mean, like, by spiritual, she goes, I mean, I mean, like, we talk about where we go to church. She says, I've invited some friends to Awana before. I said, well, that, that's fantastic, uh, sweetie, but is that sharing the gospel? She goes, well, I don't know. And then she got sidetracked on some totally irrelevant conversation about me and our neighborhood and whether or not I'm sharing the gospel with our neighbors. I mean, just <laughs> sidetracked. You know, got to keep these young kids on track. And I said, well, no, honestly, Hannah, uh, I understand. I mean, I feel comfortable talking with, with people in my neighborhood, acquaintances that I know from, from working out five points or whatever. I, I feel comfortable talking about vague spiritual things. I mean, we can talk about church in kind of a general sense and, and maybe a little bit about God in kind of a vague, non-offensive way, but, but that doesn't mean I've shared the gospel, does it? It doesn't mean that I've proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord and all that that means. But I want you to look at this text with me this morning, and what we see is that, that you and I, if we're to be disciples of Jesus Christ, have a very profound divine responsibility. He says here in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. An essential task 
of being a Christ follower is that you are a witness to a resurrected Christ. Our responsibility that God has given us is to take this message of a, a Christ who suffered and, and died for sins and, and rose from the dead and a person can be forgiven by repenting and believing in him, by placing their faith in him. That's a message that God has sovereignly ordained that you and I should be proclaimers of, witnesses to. We go into our workplace as witnesses. We go into our school as witnesses. We go into our neighborhoods as witnesses. We go to five points as witnesses. We go wherever we go as witnesses. The essential thing I think we see in this text is that you and I are to be witnesses of a resurrected Lord. And what I want to do is I want to talk with you about what that means, how we are to proclaim these things as Christ followers, how and what we are to proclaim. Number one, the first thing I want us to look at here in the text is you and I proclaim a uniquely authoritative message. We proclaim a uniquely authoritative message. Look at verse 44 with me. He says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you. In other words, what I'm about to remind you of are are my words. These are the things that I've told you throughout my ministry. And if we went no further than just this part of verse 44, that would be enough. Jesus intrinsically has the authority to tell us what to do as his followers. He says, uh, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, what were the things that Jesus had authoritatively said to his disciples throughout his ministry? Well, Luke chapter 9, Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Verse 44 in Luke 9, he says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men. Luke 17, he tells his disciples, first uh, he, that's me, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Luke 18, he takes the 12, verse 31, he says to them, look, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Uh, He will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked shamefully treated, spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. Jesus is saying, by his authority as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, he is proclaiming some things about himself and his ministry. He's done it throughout his time on earth, and those things are authoritative because he says them. But there's something else about the authority behind his words you see here in verse 44. He says, The things that I've said, my words, are also authoritative because they are fulfillments of what was written in, he talks about three areas, the law of Moses, and he's referring there to the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. He says the law of Moses and the prophets, that's the books written by the prophets, the historical books and the, the, the prophetic books, and, and he says, and the Psalms, and that's kind of a, a, a way to refer to all the the, what they call the writings, the, what we call might, might call the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and so forth. And so he's saying, basically, all the Old Testament proclaims me, and, and all the things that the Old Testament said about me must be fulfilled. 
Now we're going to go into this in greater detail as we go through our Old Testament series here in two weeks. But I just want you to, to think about this just kind of as an overview. Think about, first of all, Moses. You come to Exodus 12 as Moses describes this Passover lamb, the Passover lamb who had to be killed and the blood placed on the doorposts of the people of Israel and the, the angel of death would pass over these homes. You think, then you come to Paul and in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, he would, he would say Christ is our Passover lamb. And so this, this act of this Passover, spotless Passover lamb being sacrificed for the people is a, a picture of the person of Jesus Christ. You come to the prophetic literature and you come to a passage like Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 talks about this Messiah. He's despised, he's rejected by men, he's a man of sorrows, he's acquainted with grief. Verse 4 He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, we, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own, own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and he goes on and describes this, this suffering Messiah, that that's what we see in the Old Testament, the prophets, and then he talks about the Psalms, and we come to a Psalm like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And it goes on and describes the words that the Messiah will ultimately speak. In other words, all the things that are written about Jesus in the Old Testament and about God's plan of redemption are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. As we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim a message that is authoritative. It's not authoritative because you and I are authoritative. It's authoritative because of the message itself, who it comes from. When I was about 14 or 15 years old, I got a phone call from a friend of a friend. It was a guy that was building a home that was going to be in the Dallas Parade of Homes. And he said, look, I, I just need some kid to come out on the construction site, and we're behind schedule, and I need him to just, you know, uh, work like crazy and, and get this thing taken care of. And I'll, I'm thinking, uh, he goes, I'll pay you $10 an hour. I said, I'm there. And so I just went out to this job site, and, and whatever anyone told me to do, I did. I was the lowest guy on the totem pole. Everyone on a construction site kind of or building a home knows who the top guy is, and then there's kind of a hierarchy, and everyone knew who was at the bottom of the hierarchy. It was me. There was no one there who couldn't tell me something to do, and I, I had to do it. The uh, Spanish-speaking workers referred to me as Manuel, as in manual labor. That was the name they gave me. And whatever anyone told me, that's what I did. Now, as I worked, I worked as someone who was doing exactly what I was told to do. I didn't come and look at the house and say, you know what, guys? Brainstorming here. Let's change the color of the door, okay? And you know what? I'm thinking a couple extra trees here and here. I didn't have that authority. When I told someone something, it was because someone else had told me what to do. As we think about the authority we have and the, the message we claim, uh, the message we proclaim being authoritative, 
we have an authoritative message, not because we have authority, but because someone else does. Think about it this way. When I sit down and I might talk with someone about their finances, or let's say a financial advisor is sitting down and talking with someone about their finances, uh, he or she might give them suggestions, but those suggestions in and of themselves are, are simply suggestions. The person can, can take it or leave it. But if that financial advisor says, look, here's what the IRS tax code says, their words now have authority, not because of the person speaking them, but because of the authority behind their words. My children, as they interact with one another, it's interesting. Sometimes I'll, I'll hear them talking. I'll, I'll give them kind of this vague instruction like, hey, guys, I want you to, to clean the downstairs. And so they, they go, and I can hear the conversations going. And, and the siblings know that, that no sibling has authority over another sibling. And so there's, there's sometimes this conflict that takes place. Like, hey, you can't tell me to sweep. You're not my boss. You're just my brother. And so there's not, you know, letting you into my, my household judge nicely. Um, that's, that's what's going on. And don't tell my kids I'm telling you this. Uh, that, that's what's going on, the, the dynamics. Right? No sibling has the authority to, to boss around another sibling. But now yesterday, we're, you know, we're at Cindy's funeral trying to honor her and her life, and my children are there. Uh, Cindy loved all my kids. And, and uh, I have one son on, on the edge who's putting his, his feet up on the chair and just thinking, oh, man. So I look at his sister who's right next to me. I say, hey, tell your brother, knock it off. And so she reaches over, whacks his feet a little bit, and he sits up, you know. Now, he didn't protest. He looks over, sees me looking at him, like, okay, you know. Sister can do it, you know. Sister's words have authority. Sister's act, and I wouldn't have slapped him that hard, perhaps, at a funeral. But, you know, the, 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 her actions have authority behind them. You and I, as we talk about the gospel, are constrained by the authority of Christ. You know, if you and I were just talking about how to, how to live the Christian life, there, there's some gray areas, right? As we talk about uh, how we're going to, to school our children, there's, there's some gray areas about where we send them to school. There's some gray areas about what we, what we wear. There's some gray areas about what sort of entertainment we engage in. All of us, I hope, have the desire to glorify God in whatever decisions we make, but there's some gray areas in how to live the Christian life. When it comes to how to enter into a relationship with God, that's not a gray area. There's an authoritative message that Jesus says, look, I want you to be a witness to. I don't want you to make something up. I don't want you to kind of give your own message. I want you to take my message and be my witness. You and I have an authoritative message. Number two, here's the second thing I want us to, to think about. The second thing is that you and I proclaim with a transformed mind. And we're, we're going to talk about this just very briefly. We've talked about a lot of these things before as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is summarizing some, some things that he's taught, taught earlier. But just real quickly, verse 45, look what he says. It says, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Over and over in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen the disciples not get it. Jesus says, look, the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the Gentiles. Uh, he's, going to be, he's going to be mistreated. He's going to be uh, betrayed by, the, by the, the Jewish leaders. 
uh, he's gonna, it's gonna suffer, gonna die, third day rise again. Just right over the heads of the disciples. Hey, look, guys, uh, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna die. What is he saying? I don't understand. It's so confused. What does that mean? Guys, this is what the scripture says. I don't know what he's saying. They're so confused. Well, now we come here to verse 45, and we see that their lack of understanding has been spiritual in nature. There's a spiritual component to the gospel proclamation that God has to sovereignly overcome if if a person is to rightly understand the gospel. He opens their minds And now they're able to understand the things in the scriptures speaking about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I I share this with you. God shares this with you through his word. So that we can understand that as we share the gospel with a person, as we talk about how a person who's separated from God can be reconciled to God, we're not just talking about some intellectual things. We're not just kind of laying out some systematic theology and saying, hey, intellectually consider this. There's a spiritual component to what our minds can grasp, and apart from God's divine enablement, and we'll talk about this more, apart from God's divine enablement, a person is not going to grasp the gospel. We'll come back to this. Number three, number three, we must proclaim that Christ suffered and died for our sins according to the scriptures. Look at what he says in verse 46. He's opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He says, now that you understand the scriptures, or you have the ability to understand the scriptures, remember, it's, it's, this is what's written. He talks about three things, that Christ should suffer, number one, that he's going to raise, number two, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed, number three. So uh, verse 46 deals with the first two. He says, look, this is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day, rise from the dead. All this is in accordance with what Scripture says. And remember, we've, we've looked at 1 Corinthians 15 before, but this is right in line with what we see in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, as he's talking about this essential message of the gospel, he says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. If you are going to proclaim the gospel, if you're going to be a witness, know this. You must somehow help a person understand who God is and how they have been separated from a relationship with God because of their sin and how Jesus died in their place. In other words, you can't just kind of vaguely say, hey, you know what, a God loves you, fill in the blank with what that means. God loves you, and, and you can have a relationship with him by believing in Jesus. Okay, well, there, there's something very profound missing, and that's the idea of sin. What does it mean that, that, that God loves me? What we have to understand and what we have to share as we proclaim Jesus Christ is, look, there's a holy God. And he's holy, not in the sense that he just keeps the rules really well, like there's some, some galactic list of rules and, and, and God does a really good job obeying them, but, but God himself is holiness. Everything that is holy is God, and, and anything that deviates from, from his holiness is sin, and so you and I are, are sinners. 
And because we're sinners, we're separated from God, there's been a, a breach of relationship. A person must understand the reality of that breach of relationship. And the penalty for being separated from God is, is eternal death. But Jesus Christ came and died on the cross in your place. He suffered and died for your sins. A person needs to understand Christ's death in their place or they don't understand the gospel. As, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3.19, Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There's this reconciliation that takes place through the person of Jesus Christ, and a person, if they're going to be reconciled to God, must know that Christ suffered and died in their place. Will Metzger wrote a, a marvelous book called Tell the Truth, he talks about our, our sometimes anemic gospel presentations. And in his book, he, he has this example of a, of a tract that he found one time, a gospel tract. And I'm, I'm going to read it to you and, and tell me if you can discern what's missing from this gospel tract. The tract was called Meet My Friend. Meet my friend. He's faithful. He's the way to God the Father. He already loves you. He wants to give you eternal life. He's the only one who can give you eternal life. He won't refuse anyone. Now that you've met my friend, don't you want to commit your life for time and for eternity into his hands? Right now, you can take the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and friend. Now, is anything in that gospel tract untrue? Well, no, not really. I mean, it's true. Jesus has always loved you. He, he uh, wants to give you eternal life. He won't refuse anyone. And and uh, you can commit your life to him. All those things are, are, are true, but, but what's missing? Exactly. There's <laughs> something very profound. Uh, our sin, the reality of our sin. I mean, I read this tract, I'm like, hey, God's cool with me. I'm cool with God. I'm like that guy. But what I have to understand is, no, 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 no. God's not cool with me <laughs> because of me. I have sinned against an infinitely holy God. He's not pleased with me because of me. Now, let me just, let me just be honest with you. This, it's hard to know how to share this, right? And I think we do this very poorly sometimes. I mean, we're not talking about just kind of walking around and and we see uh, someone, and we, we, we're kind of walking along the street, and we hear someone say a bad word. I'm like, excuse me, just want to let you know, you have displeased a holy God, and you are going to hell. Have a great day. And just keep walking. I shared the gospel. I'm just telling the truth, right? No, that, that, that's not what we're doing. I believe ideally what this looks like, to be, be his witness and teaching this, it looks something like this. We are engaging in friendships with people whom we love. And we need to love people, right? And as we engage in friendships with people, they're gospel-centered friendships. We're talking about life. We're talking about how we live life. As we engage in these, these friendships with, with people whom we love so dearly and we hear about some sort of aspect of their life that we know isn't, isn't pleasing to God, we talk about that and say, hey, you know what, I, I heard you say this, and, 
let me just share with you what, what God's word says about this and, and, and something that God has taught me in this area of my life about what he believes about this, this area of your life that you're talking about. And it's, it's in a very humble, God-glorifying way. But understand this, we haven't shared the gospel with people until we've talked about the reality of sin in, in our lives and their lives. And I believe this is where so many presentations of the gospel, so many so-called gospel conversations fail because a person who comes through conversations with people sometimes has no understanding of why they've ever had a separation from God in the first place. Number four, number four, we proclaim that we can be forgiven for our sins through our repentance and faith in Christ alone. Number four, we proclaim that we can be forgiven for our sins through repentance and faith in Christ alone. Remember, he's talking about things that are being fulfilled in his ministry, and he says now this in verse 47. Uh, it's written also that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, this idea of repentance is, is very crucial. We've talked about repentance before. By the way, I, I think that in verse 47, if, if you're reading from the ESV, perhaps a, a better translation of what takes place here, it says, he says, uh, in the ESV it translates it, repentance and forgiveness of sins. I think a better way to say it is repentance for forgiveness of sins. In other words, there's this link between the idea of repenting and, and being forgiven. And throughout Scripture, we see this link that a person, and here I want to be very, very clear here, a person is, is not saved by their works, right? A person cannot be found acceptable to God on the basis of their works. We see that a person is saved by, by faith, by, by trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And this means that repentance is not some work that we do. We don't go to, to God and say, okay, God, I've, I've repented of all my sins. I've, I've gone to everyone. I've made everything right. And so now here's my repentance. You take it. I've, I've purchased salvation for myself. That's not what repentance is. As we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, remember we've seen that repentance is, is the other side of the coin of, of faith. A, a person who's repentant is a person who's placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And the illustration we've used before is a person who's sinking in the ocean and they're, they're clinging to this huge boulder and someone throws them a life preserver and as they're sinking and holding on to this boulder, they, they see the life preserver and in order to grasp the life preserver, they must first let go of the boulder so they can cling to the life preserver. And that's, that's what repentance is. It's, okay, here's my sin. I, I, I'm, I'm turning from this and I'm turning to Jesus. It's the, the same side of the, the coin of faith, of trusting in Jesus Christ alone. We've talked before again about repentance, aspects of what it means to repent. There's first of all an, an intellectual component. A person who's repenting intellectually understands the things that they've been doing are, are wrong. I've been, let's say, for example, I, I've been cheating on my taxes. And I now intellectually understand that, boy, what I was doing, I, I didn't think about it being wrong before, but now intellectually I understand that, that this is wrong. And there's this an emotional component of repentance. I say, yeah, I no longer want to do this. I, I have a desire to, to change. And then there's this, the last aspect of the will. I, I'm, I'm deciding to turn from it. Here's what I want you to see. A person who's going to become a Christian must understand that 
they're walking along a path that is not going to lead to eternal life. A person who's going to become a Christian must understand, look, this this pathway that I'm walking is not leading to joy. It's not leading to fulfillment. It's a path that ends in destruction. And I can't just add Jesus to this path. I must understand that I need to, to walk on a different path. And that only God can enable me to do that. And so I, I turn from this path and I, I turn to Jesus and I say, save me. A.W. Tozer wrote an, an amazing assessment of, of the cross. And he's talking about something he calls the new cross. He's, talking about, he's comparing this new cross, it's kind of a false gospel, with the old cross, with, with the cross we see in Scripture. And he's lamenting the fact that the new cross just allows a person to continue to walk along the, the path that they've been walking without repenting, just kind of adding Jesus to that path. And he says, this, this isn't healthy. A. W. Listen to what A.W. Tozer writes. He says, the new cross does not slay the sinner. It just redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, the new cross says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of the abundant Christian life. The idea behind this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of of a person. God salvages the individual by liquidating him and then raising him to newness of life. Whoever would possess eternal life must pass under the rod. He must repudiate himself and concur in God's just sentence against him. The non-Christian must repent and believe. He must forsake his sins and then go on to forsake himself. Let him cover nothing, defend nothing, excuse nothing. Let him not seek to make terms with God, but let him bow his head before the stroke of God's stern displeasure and acknowledge himself worthy to die. Now, I'm not saying that every unbeliever needs to understand the fullness of this theology, right? What I'm saying is every person, every human being must understand I'm worthy to die and I'm coming to the cross not to just kind of cosmetically change who I am, not to just add Jesus to the other things going on in my life, but, but to turn my life completely and thoroughly over to the person of Jesus Christ. It's a hard message, right? What it means, and let me, let me say this carefully, what it means is that you cannot just keep being the same you and be saved. As we proclaim Christ, we are proclaiming the violent end to ourselves as we follow him in a life of discipleship. And I think so many people have failed to understand the gospel because we've presented this very poorly to them. We've said, hey, you know what? You're living this life, and, and we rightly say, you know, you don't have to work to earn your salvation, but we, we fail to, to help them understand what it means to place their trust in Jesus Christ. 
It means to acknowledge that what we've been doing is wrong, is not working, is not going to lead to life, is not going to lead to joy, and saying, look, we are deciding by God's grace to turn from this. If we don't proclaim that, if we don't proclaim that we can be forgiven our sins through repentance and faith in Christ alone, we haven't been faithful witnesses. Again, we do that in a winsome, in a gracious way, but in a bold way as well. Well, last few here. Number five, we've touched on this before as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke. We, we proclaim the good news to everyone. We proclaim the good news to everyone. Jesus says here at the end of verse 47, uh, he says, he, he says you, you're proclaiming this to all nations, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. As we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, remember we started away from Jerusalem and then there was this journey to Jerusalem and then as you end the Gospel of Luke and then you begin Luke's other book, Acts, you, you begin in Jerusalem then you spread out to the remotest parts of the world. And God's plan from the very beginning has been that all people would come, to, that, that all, all nations, all, all ethnicities would engage in worship of him and you think, well, that's just a New Testament idea. No, remember, Jesus is a fulfillment of the Old Testament, and we see the Old Testament that God had this desire for this multi-ethnic, multi-nation worship of him. Genesis twenty-two eighteen, God tells Abraham, in your offspring, all, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Psalm 72, verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And Isaiah 65, 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. God has always had a salvific focus for all the nations. Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God has always had a, a multi-ethnic, global focus for gospel proclamation. He wants people of all tribes and tongues and nations to engage in worship of him. If we love Christ, we want the same thing. Our goal is not just that central Illinois becomes this little bastion of godliness. We want all people knowing and loving the Lord. Number six, we proclaim as a witness, not as an innovator. We've looked at verse 48 already, but it says you are witnesses of these things. It's not a good thing sometimes to be called original. If I'm preaching and after I'm, I'm preaching, someone up, comes up to me and says, wow, Daniel, I've never heard that before. What an amazing new interpretation of the text. I get a little bit nervous. <laughs> Was that really new? I hope not. <laughs> Last night, or let's see, this was, uh, this was a little while ago, but my, my kids were, um, well, actually, it was last night. There, there was a little conversation going on upstairs. Whitney and I are downstairs, and we hear this conversation upstairs, and we go upstairs to find out and investigate what's going on, and by, by we, I mean Whitney, uh, goes upstairs to investigate and find you know, what is causing this this lack of peace among our children, and uh, I can hear from the downstairs uh, various, various takes on what's taken place, various perspectives, various stories. You know. 
in that moment, as I, Whitney, investigate what, what's taking place, we don't want our children to be innovative. We don't want them to elaborate on potential things that might have happened, reasons they could have done what they did. We want the truth. We want them to tell us exactly what took place, even if it makes them look bad. As we proclaim, we are not innovative. Our task isn't to be as creative as possible as sharing the gospel. We want to be winsome, we want to be loving, we want to be engaged, but at the same time, the message is pretty simple. It's already been given to us. We serve not as innovators, but as witnesses. Last thing, number seven, we proclaim by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to grasp this truth. Verse 49, this goes back to the idea of a transformed mind that we looked at earlier. It says, behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but, but stay in this, the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And what is that power from on high? Well, as we go to the book of Acts, we see it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You know, as, as Hannah and I talked about sharing the gospel, and I realize that it's, it's not just my daughter that has the responsibility of proclaiming Jesus Christ to people and sometimes struggles with it. It's, it's me. As, as we talked about that, and I, I came to that realization and came to that conviction, I realized, you know what? I'm insufficient for this. And you're insufficient for this. The task of, of sharing these things with the people that God has, has placed in our, our lives can only be done through the enabling work of, of the Spirit. Only God can enable us to proclaim these things. You know, I want you, to, if, if you would, you know, maybe just take a moment here and, and, and pray, you know, just in the quietness of here, pray, you know, God, who are the people that you would have me sharing these truths with? Maybe just write down a name or two. Who are the people that, that you've, you've placed in my life that you would have me sharing this message of how they can be reconciled to you? Who are those people? And understand this, you are insufficient for doing that. You don't have the courage. You don't have the conviction. You don't have the ability to convince a person. You got nothing. But fortunately, you don't have to do it yourself. God has given us the Spirit to engage in gospel proclamation ministry. I read a story a few years ago about a restaurant in the Atlanta area. The restaurant was called uh, Church of God Grill. And it's kind of a strange name for a restaurant, right? Church of God Grill. And so there's some speculation. Okay, what happened? And what happened is this. The, the Church of God Grill restaurant used to be a mission in the downtown Atlanta area. And as they did their services on Sunday, they found that, that people weren't really coming. They weren't that engaged. They said, okay, how can we get people engaged and excited? And how can we reach people in this area? How can we minister to people? And someone came up with the idea, let's, let's make some, some chicken dinners for people after the services. Fantastic idea. Well, the chicken dinners were fantastic. People loved them. People who weren't even needing chicken dinners came and, and wanted to be a part of, of eating these. They, they wanted uh, to, to, to buy the, the dinners. And so the Church of God mission uh, 
eventually realized, hey, our church services aren't working out that well. The chicken business is great. And they stopped being a church and became the Church of God Grill. What a tragic loss of focus. What a tragic loss of understanding purpose. You and I are sometimes guilty of the same tragic loss of purpose. You see, God has not placed you where he has at work so you can advance in your career and make a lot of money. God has sovereignly placed you there to to be his witnesses. You are my witnesses, Jesus says. God has not placed you with the people at your school in order for you to just get good grades and and to, to get ahead in life and to reach that next stage He's placed you there ultimately to, to be his witnesses. He's not placed you in the neighborhood so that you can have this manicured lawn and, and uh, this, 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 or this great apartment or this you know, running water and electricity. He's not, not placed you there ultimately for that. He's placed you there to be his witnesses. God desires that you and I would be those who proclaim an authoritative message. An authoritative message, not because we're authoritative, because the message is authoritative. Here's how you can be reconciled to God. And we proclaim that message of forgiveness through faith, repentance, through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never turned from sins to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I encourage you, even this morning, that today would be the day of salvation. You would recognize your need for a Savior and place your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would enable us to do the things you've called us to do, to proclaim your gospel message to the lost. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.